Hi, welcome to this week's Seacoast Vineyard Podcast, coming to you from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We hope this message will touch your life in a meaningful way and that you'll be encouraged in your journey with God. How was everyone? Well, you guys survived the elections? Were smiles? Smiles and friends. The first service, people were like that, and some were like this, and it was like, okay, come on, there's one king, one king, there's one king named Jesus. I just want to say this too, Veterans Day I think is tomorrow, and I would just like to recognize, uh, if any of you guys uh, are veterans, would you please stand so we could just honor you? Please stand. Thank you so much. Amen. How appropriate that the election comes right before this because these folks are the ones that guarantee our freedom and that we have this great privilege to be able to vote. And uh, some of the pictures we just saw on the screen, some of our dear brothers and sisters all around the world don't have that privilege. And uh, and so we do. And so we thank you, veterans, for uh, all that you do to see that we keep that. And thank you. Um, we're going to pray for our president and for Congress in just a few minutes, but I just want to get everybody up to speed here. Last week, we started a new series I'm calling Why Worship, and Why Worship is to explain why we should worship God, but also to explain, you know, what's the big deal about worship? What are our struggles with worship? Because it, in all honesty, in church, wouldn't you think worship would be the easiest thing to do? I mean, think about it. We come in here because of who? God, right? Because Jesus loves us, reconciled us through the price that he paid, bridged that gap, redeemed us so that we could come to know our creator, our father, God. Responding to that great news should be the easiest thing in the world for us. Responding to the love of God, the extravagant love of God, should be so easy because it's the greatest gift that's ever been given. And yet, still in church, we seem to have a problem at times with worship. That's why we've reversed things a little bit. We uh, like do one song up front, and then we're going to come back at the end and do a few more songs so that we get to practice what we learn. And so we get to focus in on uh, who this is that we, we read about every week. You know, for those of you who are Bible freaks, I mean, I'm a Bible freak. I mean, I, I love the Scripture I spend time in it. I know you guys love it. We have many people here who study and and spend a lot of time in the Scripture, theology buffs and all. But, you know, the Word, the little W, the Word tells us about the Word, capital W. You know that. Even out of John, the first chapter, right? All of this is pointing to the Word, right? I mean, we worship a person. We worship God. That's who we worship. This book reveals God to us tells us who he is, how great he is, how that we come in contact with him, tells us how to live. It's our source, our guide, our book for all things that uh, we want to learn to live like and also about this God that we worship. Our worship, though, doesn't go to the little W. Our worship goes to the big W, the Word, Jesus Christ. And so... Sometimes we get it mixed up. People come into church and they, you know, they're real bibliologues and they, they want to get to the scripture. And we're like, let's just get to the scripture. You know, we get, the first part of the service is just like a, you know, like a preamble. It's just something that we just do as, we, as an add-on. Let's get to the scripture. No, 
worship of God is the point. It is the point. Coming to know him is the point. Uh, years ago, I had a guy that used to come into the service. This is probably four or five years ago. And he would sit through the worship service like this. I mean, it was, he was trying to make a point, right? He'd sit through the whole worship service. And then he would take his, as soon as I started to preach, he would take his notebook out, smile. And, and one Sunday, I went over to him. I said, dude, what is up? I mean, is it too loud or what? We'll get you some, you know, things for your ears there or whatever. But no, I hate worship. You hate worship. I hate it. I detest it. I can't stand it. I just can't stand it. I can't. I can't. I like the teaching. I like the preaching, but I cannot stand the worship. I said, no, you don't like the teaching or the preaching. No, you don't. Yes, I do. I said, no, you don't because you don't understand it. Because if you understood it, you would look forward to worship. Because what we talk about is this great Jesus that has come to earth to reconcile us back to him, and you would be going, give me a chance to express it, Tim. Give me an opportunity. So you're not listening, or I'm not doing a very good job. One of the two. And look, if you're going to go through the worship service like this, the best thing to do is just don't come. Sorry. Because it's going to be about him. We want to worship him. And so in our efforts to try to refocus a bit here in the vineyard over these few weeks, we have reversed the service. I don't know. I kind of like it like this. I may leave it. You know, we may leave it with uh, what I used to call a funnel service where everything focuses to that one moment where you look and there comes, you know, here comes the king, the king of glory, and all of our attention goes to him. So that's what this is about. You know, worship is not primarily about the worshiper. It's about the worshiped. But we always have our criteria for what makes comfortable worship for us, don't we? I mean, I do. Don't you? You go into a church, you go into a gathering, and you want the worship to be comfortable for you. Right? And so we, start, we have this list of the style of music we like. We have the list of the volume that we like. We have the list of whatever, all of these. We have all of these things. But worship is really not about us. It's about the worshiped. It's about Him. And so at least once or twice a year, we want to refocus. And going into Christmas time and also going into a new year, what a great time for us to refocus and to say it really is all about him. Last week we were over in 2 Samuel chapter 6. We're going to be back over there again today. And let me just kind of catch you up quickly. We found David, King David in the Old Testament, had gone to try to bring back the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is a piece of furniture, uh, you know, three and a half feet or so wide, uh, long and two and a half or so feet deep and wide and covered in gold and inside of that piece of... Uh, that box were three reminders of God's faithfulness, also his holiness and his choice. I mean, there was the rod of Aaron that budded the chief priests. There was the manna, how God fed the children of Israel in the desert. And then were the Ten Commandments were in there, the law. We learned last week that that whole box, that those pieces in that box pointed to Christ to come. And you, you have to go to the podcast and listen to that to catch up on all of that. But we also saw that God seemed to show up wherever that ark, they call it the Ark of the Covenant, wherever Israel took that ark, God's presence showed up. It wasn't that God lived in a box, any of that, but God showed up at that focal point. So David wants the Ark of the Covenant back in Jerusalem because he wants God's presence in Jerusalem, just like we want God's presence here in this church. And so David has gone back with 30,000 men to go and get this Ark of the Covenant, and to bring it back to Jerusalem. He's excited. He is so excited. 
He built a new cart to put it on, to haul it back. They've got it on this new cart. David is dancing and having a big old time and worshiping, and they're bringing the cart along. They get to this one area, which is like a threshing floor area, probably a lot of wind because when they would thresh the seed and all, it would be a windy place in these days. They would throw it up in the air, and the wind would come through, blow the husk off the seed. And uh, so they came to this area. The cart tilted. Maybe the wind got it, and it started to fall off the Ark of the Covenant. And this guy, who's just like us, just like we would, would reach down to grab it, just like you would. Oh, let's don't let the ark fall on the ground. Let's grab it. And so when he grabbed it, God killed him, struck him down. No way to reinterpret that. That's what happened. All right? No embellishing, no poetic license on it. God killed him, struck him, dead, gone. And David did the same thing that we do. David gets mad at first when God does something we don't understand. Don't you get angry? I don't understand you. I thought you were a God of love. Mm-hmm. David gets angry. And then the next thing that happens, David is afraid of God. Wow, if God took, took that from my life, he may take something else from my life. I don't know if I want to be around God. And so he backs up until he backs away from God's presence. They leave this Ark of the Covenant in Obed-Edom's house. He, David's like, who can bring the ark up? I, I, I can't bring it up. So he leaves it in this guy's house, and God blesses this house. I can imagine David saying, how's it going down there with that ark? I mean, last time we saw it, God killed somebody for touching it. How's Obed-Edom? Is he still alive? Is he okay? Well, God's blessing his socks off. I mean, it, all kind of good things are happening at his house. So David goes, hmm, I'm not dumb. Let me figure this out. Let's go get it. Let's try it again. Let's get it back to Jerusalem. And so he goes back, and uh, that's where we're going to join him this morning. So let's pray, and we'll be in 2 Samuel 6, verse 13. Father, thank you for your word. I do love your word. I appreciate your word, Lord. I appreciate that it is a lamp, Lord. It is light. It is a mirror. Lord, it, it reveals to us ourselves as well as you. Lord, this is the tool that you have given us to be able to see who you are, how to worship you, how to serve you, how to live our lives. And I thank you for that. I ask that you breathe fresh life, God, on this message today. And Lord, we lift our president up to you for another four years. We pray that you bless him. You give him wisdom. Lord, you surround him with good counselors, uh, wise counselors. Lord, we pray for our Congress, for Senate, House of Representatives. We pray for those new ones going in, that, Lord, you would lead them and give them wisdom. Uh, Lord, we thank you again for our military and the service that they have given us and continue to do, Lord. And we thank you for your presence here with us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's read this, 2 Samuel 6, 13 through 23. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, 
Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Now, remember, David had a setback when Uzzah was killed. He just didn't understand it, and he backed up. But as he saw Obed-Edom blessed with the Ark of the Covenant in his house, he goes, let's get the Ark back. But when David goes back to get the Ark, he's a little more cautious this time, isn't he? I mean, it's like, one, two, three, four, five, six. All right, sacrifice, sacrifice. Give an offering to God. We're all still alive. Okay, one, two, three, four, five, six. Oh, sacrifice, sacrifice. Everybody here? Everybody okay? All right. That's what happens when we get angry with God and we pull away after a while. When we come back to God, we're a lot more cautious usually than what we were. And David's no different. He's more reverent. He's less cocky. He's less confident. There's more humility. And uh, you return a changed person when you've Face the mystery that's God. And again, we talked a little bit about that last week. Like the prodigal in Luke 15. He was pretty arrogant and cocky, demanding of his father his inheritance, didn't he, when he first started the journey. But once he got out on his journey and he lost everything that he had, he returned a different person. Many of you maybe are returning. Some of you may be returning to God. You've been away from God for a while. God has done some things or... And you're like, I don't understand, God. I can't, I can't wrap my head, or head around why this happened in my life, why this. And so you were angry, you were afraid, you pulled away, and now you're making your way back. And you're making your way back a little more tentative and a little more cautious this time and a little more reverent. In 2 Samuel 6, 14 through 16, we see how David was worshiping God, though it didn't affect his worship any. It affected his attitude and the way he approached things. But look, David was wearing a linen ephod, typical uh, uh, priestly garment, danced before the Lord with all of his might. He's still pretty excited about the ark coming back. He is no less excited about God being in their midst with all his might, not just a little bit. Have you ever done anything with all your might? Have you ever done anything with all of your might? I mean, everything that's within you, you have given yourself to it. Have you ever done that? That's what David was doing in worship. Giving himself to it, everything that was within him, he's giving it to God. All of it. And there's shouts, there's sound of trumpets. It's loud. It's, you know, like I said, this would have made a lot of us uncomfortable, this worship service. And in verse 16, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. Man, she was watching. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Your first fill-in, if you've got it there in your handout, there's a little slip of paper that I put in there each week uh, so you can just track along with me. Your first fill-in is that if we're going to worship God the way he deserves to be worshipped is we need to stop being an observer and a critic. 
She watched from the window. Can you imagine this? This is one of those views into a family life where the wife is really upset with the husband. I mean, it makes me laugh when I think about it. He's coming home. You ever been like this in your marriage? You're so excited. You're coming home, but the spouse is not that excited when you get home. <laughs> I mean, kind of shock all of a sudden. And so David is all excited, and he comes in, and his wife is not that excited. Why? Because she's an observer. She watched from the window. She wasn't down on the field of play. She removed herself to the critic's corner. And boy, if we're good at anything in this country, we're good at criticizing, aren't we? And the church is good at criticizing. You guys have your favorite reality series. Admit it. I I don't really want to hear which one it is, but... You know, I, I, I tried to Google out and find out how many reality series uh, there actually are, and I just gave up. I started counting. It just went on and on and on and on. And I read another pastor say that there was like 200 reality series on television right now because we like to kind of live vicariously through other people. We want to watch other people do the hard work, like on those fishing boats and stuff, you know. It's like, man, that looks like a neat job because I'm sitting here on my couch, got my cup of coffee. It's warm here. But we're always, you know, it's a safe distance to criticize. And uh, the church is no different. But if there's anyone that's really good at criticizing, it's Simon Cowell. Watch this. Not in a billion years. There are only so many words I can drag out of my vocabulary to say how awful that was. You actually sing like a, like a train going off the rails. It was a bit like watching a ship sink, that audition. It just started off there and you just sunk. What that reminded me of when I was sitting here was like, instead of being on the stage of American Idol, you're at a local rodeo, you've just been crowned the prom queen. I think it's lucky we didn't charge the audience to come in tonight because they'd ask for a refund. If ever we do American Idol as an ice dancing musical, you would be perfect. <laughs> what we hear in, in this studio, because it's, it, it's loud in here, I promise you, you're going to watch this back. It was a complete and utter mess. The majority, probably like me, thought it was verging on excruciating. <laughs> we do this in church, too. You ever been in a worship service and you, you look across the aisle and you look at someone and, and, and I like what he said, sitting here, exactly. Sitting here, criticizing, observing, not participating. And it's so easy to criticize when we don't participate because participation affects our perspective, how we look at things. We actually can't get a proper perspective if we're not in the middle of doing it. We don't know. We don't have a good, clear view of things. And church has its critics as well. I mean, I've seen churches. I I, I saw a church destroyed because one guy decided to write one book and go on his radio program and talk negative about one church that he had never attended and never talked to the pastor about. But he sits back in his chair and just exudes criticism without ever having done the work to participate in a dialogue. We love to observe and we love to critique. And don't get me wrong, there's necessary critiquing. Pastors and leaders have to do debriefing and we critique and try to make sure that we're going the direction we need to go and that, you know, that the church is in a healthy place. But it's so easy when we're not involved to criticize. I think it was D.L. Moody, uh, big ministry up in Chicago, and Moody uh, was stopped on the streets one day about the way he does ministry, and a guy told him, another pastor says, you know, I don't, I don't like you, and I don't like what you're doing. 
And Moody responded with, I like what we are doing better than what you're not doing. In other words, he's, the other guy wasn't doing anything. He wasn't participating. And it's so easy. But we need to stop being. Stop being observers and stop being critics in worship. Start look, stop looking at someone or something and going, gosh, look at them. They're making a fool out of themselves. You know, why are they doing that? They can't sing. They don't need to sing. They need to be quiet. How can I concentrate and sing? That person can't sing. Let them make a joyful noise. We're not singing to ourselves. You get this, don't you? It's not about the worshiper. It's about the worship. And when we come together as a church, then that's very important that we make it about the worship. We make it about him. And your second fill in there is simply this. Start being a participant. Start participating in worship. Worship. Do it. Give God worship. Maybe, maybe even this morning we need to grab our, a few moments with the Lord and confess and say, God, you know, I've been a critic. I've been way too full of myself. Way too full of myself in, in trying to judge other people and how they express their love for God. Forgive me, Lord. Let me give you my worship. Let me spend time on me giving my worship to you. Maybe we need to say, I'm going to get out of the stands. You know, I'm criticizing. You're going to go home and watch football games this afternoon. And many of you are football coaches, critics. You sit on your couch, you know, you throw food at the screen, all that kind of thing. When you, what? A stupid coach. You can't do blah, 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 blah. And then finally, how about in our worship, instead of doing that, we say, I'm going to get out on the field. I am actually going to step out onto the field. I'm going to feel the soul of worship. I'm going to smell the presence of God. I'm going to. I'm going to begin to experience what it's like to actually participate instead of criticizing and being an observer. I'm going to step into it. I'm going to experience it. I'm going to give God what he is due. I'm going to get out of the stands, get off the sidelines. Rick Warren in his book, The Purpose Driven Life, says the designation active member in most churches means those who attend regularly and financially support the church. Not much more is expected. But God has far greater expectations for every Christian. He expects every Christian to use his or her gifts and talents in ministry. If we can ever awaken and unleash the massive talent, resources, creativity, and energy lying dormant in the typical local church, Christianity will explode with growth at an unprecedented rate. I wonder even in our worship, if we began to worship God like he is due to worship, what would happen with the presence of God in our midst? How much more will we realize his presence here? How much more in our prayer time and our ministry teams, how much more of the, of the presence of God to heal, to restore, would come in our gatherings if we really gave God our worship and we got out of the stands and got out on the field, became a participant? I wonder if it's disrespectful to God for us to arrogantly stay in this position as, of an observer and not a participant when God has invited us into this awesome privilege to be able to give him praise and to give him worship. Now, there's another problem David's wife had, 2 Samuel 6, 14 through 16. David, wearing a linen ephod, dressed a dance before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. 
As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. David was using everything he had with all of his might, his whole body, to worship God, and Michael absolutely hated it. Biblical worship involves your body. It's giving your body to God. It's saying, hey, with everything that's within me, I'm going to worship my hands, my mouth, my eyes, my, everything I have, my emotions, my affections, all of it is yours, Lord, because you do all of it. And David was doing this with all of his heart. He was putting his body where his worship is. And biblical worship is a physical worship. There's no way to read this book and not see that when we worship God, we are to physically be involved in worship to some extent, to give ourselves to it and expressing our love for God. I mean, out here, outside of the church, most people understand everyone worships something. And people give themselves to, to passions. Wednesday night, Karen and I, a friend, Steve, invited us to come hear him and uh, his band in Wilmington. And it was in an old church, a 200-year-old church in Wilmington that they had turned into a concert venue. And so when we walked in there, I was like, this is pretty cool. Old church, beautiful, beautiful place. And walked in and, be, you know, by the time the concert started, it was packed. And so I'm kind of taking this in. I'm, I'm doing the preacher thing, I admit it. You know, I'm kind of looking around. I'm taking in an inventory of the people. And I'm thinking, these people are here for a worship service. They are here to enjoy something and to participate with the band. They weren't there just to listen. They weren't there to listen. They were there to participate in what was going on. That girl in the middle, when I took the picture, I didn't notice it. But, I mean, there was no singing. It's two bass players playing solos. And she's still excited. I mean, if you can get excited over two bass players, I mean, you know, come on. And she's so, she's so, so caught up. She's sitting there in the middle, and she is just caught up to the left. And I'm thinking it's such a multi-generational group. There's all kinds of people here. And it was packed like that all the way to the door. I mean, shoulder to shoulder, all the way back out. And it was a worship service. Now, were they worshiping God? No, but they were worshiping the music at the time, and they wanted to participate. But yet we come into the church and we go, God is great. He's worthy. Yes. And I'm thinking, they get it. They get it. They get it. There's something to be excited about. We've got more than anything to be excited about, to give ourselves to. I mean, the Rastafarians were over here to my left. There was another group over here. There were a few old dudes like me right along here. And, uh, but the place, and everybody was getting along with each other, and everybody was focused toward one thing, the music. The music. The music. You can't give God the worship he's due without giving it to him with your body. As uncomfortable as that may feel to you, I think he deserves it. He deserves the body to be able to be given to him in worship and praise. You know what our problem is, is is this Greek dualism that's such a part of our society. You know what I'm talking about, how Plato taught that the body was unimportant, you know, that it was, you just kind of discard it. It's the mind, it's the intellect that we need to use, and we've taken that into the church. And don't get me wrong, I love a thinking church. Nobody should check their brain at the door when you walk in here. You know, you have it on. But there is a part where we give our whole selves to God. 
The Greeks, the Romans would come along and say, no, it's the intellect. But the Jews came along and said, no, you worship God with your body too. You worship God with everything that's within you. Psalms 139, beautiful, beautiful psalm says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. What works are wonderful? Your body. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. So we take this and we use it as an instrument of worship. Michael did not like David using his body as an instrument of worship. John 1.14 says the word became what? Flesh. The word became flesh. God took on flesh. That still blows my mind. And to believe anything different than that is to be heretical. I mean, 2 John 1, 7 says it's false teaching to believe anything less than that God took on flesh in Jesus Christ. And we have a bodily future. Your future is not left to some like, you know, oh, my spirit's going to survive, and I'm going to be floating around, you know, and all of us' spirits are going to be, oh, there's Tim, oh, hey, you know, floating around like that. No, Scripture says we're going to be bodily resurrected. That one day Jesus was the first. That's the only example we have of what it's going to be like. It looks pretty cool to me, walking through walls. It's cool. That kind of body you can eat if you want to. If you don't want to, you can enjoy it. Or you, want, you know, all of that beautiful Jesus is the firstborn among many brethren. Firstborn, but there's many more to come. We are going to be resurrected into a body. Yeah, it'll be different. It'll be glorified. People joke, years ago we used to joke, Jesus was supposed to be about 33 when, uh, when he was crucified. That's a good age. Lord, give me my body when I was 33 years old. <laughs> yes. You know, if that's what it's going to be, I'll take it. That's it. I don't know. It'll be good. That's all I know. It's going to be a bodily resurrection. God has not taken our bodies and said this is evil all oh, is separated from the spirit no God comes and works through it matter of fact Romans 12 1 says I urge you brothers in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to God this is your spiritual act of worship it's a spiritual act to take your body and use it to praise God and instead of killing and sacrificing animals as the Jews did, and as the Romans did during that time, now we get to give ourselves to the Lord. Uh, the early church father, what, 250, 280 A.D., I think, uh, John Chrysostom, what they call him, Golden Mouth, great preacher, uh, says this about giving our bodies to the Lord. How is the body to become a sacrifice? Let the eye look on no evil, and it has already become a sacrifice. Let the tongue say nothing filthy, and it has become an offering. Let, let your hand do nothing evil and it has become a whole burnt offering. But even this is not enough for we must have good works also. The hand must do alms, the mouth bless those who curse it and the ears must find time to the reading of scripture. Sacrifice allows of no unclean thing. It is the first fruits of all actions. So we give our bodies. And your next fill in, 
kind of goes right along with this, and that is that we need to stop being Spock. Remember Spock? (laughs) Remember him? Captain, it's illogical. Illogical. Those of us who tend to be logical people and reasonable people tend to be Spockish when it comes to our worship as well. Uh, We want to have logical theology. Logically, we want to be logically theological and uh, not too emotional. You know, we don't want to involve our emotions or our bodies too much. But did you know in the New Testament, one of the words for worship, uh, I think it's proskuneo, is, is to kiss. To kiss. Does that, does that sound kind of intimate? To worship God? I mean, that's one of the words for worship. I mean, think about it. What if I walked up to Karen one day and I said, Karen, I want you to know I feel absolutely nothing when I kiss you. My heart is frozen and dead, but it's my duty. Plus, we know emotions is not love. Kissing you is the right thing to do since I am your husband and I will be dutiful and do so rationally and reasonably. (laughs) Now, you tell me, ladies, does that really turn you on? I mean, does that that really make you feel like your husband would really love you and care for you? But we approach God the same way. Approach Him the same way. Like God would not appreciate our emotions. Uh, Reminded me of a story years ago. I heard uh, this couple lived out in the country and they were driving to their little country church uh, for their 50th wedding anniversary celebration. And so he was in his truck and his wife was there and they went in, had the anniversary and it was really nice. And they got back in the truck to go home and they're riding back home and the wife scoots over to his side and she looks at him and she says, you know... You've never told me you've loved me since the day we got married. And he looked back at her and said, I'll tell you if anything changes. <laughs> yeah. Let's get rid of a Michael's heart and not be so afraid of being able to express. And your last feeling there is let's start being emotionally engaged. Let's start being emotionally engaged in our worship. I mean, what is our problem with people being emotionally, you know, expressive? We all have, some of us immediately get real uncomfortable with it. Michael was judged by God because of her criticism and judgment. You know, says that she bore no children, she remained barren. What happened is she just became what she was inside. She was already barren in her heart towards God. Barren, in, and so she just became barren physically too unable to reproduce because once we get that numbed out, once we become that separated from our emotions, we're pretty much dead to ourselves. She was barren and cold. But also notice this. This can affect us emotionally. In uh, 2 Samuel six sixteen. as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watch from the window. She's called the daughter of Saul in verse 20 as well. Why didn't it say Michael... David's wife. Why was she described Michael, daughter of Saul? Because she was her father's daughter. Some of us fight our DNA. It has set us up in such a way that we are so uncomfortable with people being able to express worship in an emotional way, or an expressive way. And uh, she was daddy's little princess. She was fighting all of that, the king's daughter. 
I mean, she had been favored. She had been treated well. You know, I told you guys last week, it's a fact. The more prestigious a church and the wealthier a church gets, as far as the people that are a part of it, the less expressive they are in their worship. It's a fact. Because suddenly our prestige is on the line, and we can't give God anymore because, like Michael, she was watching And she was thinking, look how my husband, the king, he's not acting like my dad. Look at him making a fool out of himself in front of all those young girls and the whole place. And she starts exaggerating, which is exactly what we do when we want to criticize people. She says, you know, talk to like he had disrobed. He hadn't disrobed. That was an exaggeration. He had on a priest garment. But anytime we want to make a point, we start embellishing things, don't we? When we really want to hurt somebody, we really want to make a point, we start embellishing it. And that's what Michael did. She became very expressive in her criticism. I mean, we have these things to deal with. Our backgrounds can predispose us to a certain degree of or lack of emotion. And uh, you, you can be like German families, or many German families are very, you know, you don't show emotion. Asian families, and any of you go to some of the more Hispanic communities, you, you see a lot more open expression of, uh, of worship. And so we can, you know, we need to look and see what does God want from us? What does He expect from us? Does He deserve everything we have? Something that we can do with all of our heart and all of our might. Now, I know the big question is this Tim, are you suggesting we throw off all restraint and have a free for all? No. That is not what I'm saying because one of the fruit of the Spirit is what? Self-control. Okay? But self-control doesn't mean we control it till we're inhuman. I mean, we use our emotions. We allow our emotions, that love, to be able to be used to express our desire and our worship of God. The best example I've ever seen of somebody walking that tightrope was a guy named Clark Taylor who came to a to our church, uh, the other church I served at for a long time. And Clark came in. He was, he was from Australia. He was, became a Christian. He lived in the outback. I mean, what was it, 200,000 acres were on this farm that he lived on. And uh, God just apprehended him in a Billy Graham crusade there in Australia, and God used him. And he would come into the church, and he would call out. He'd say, who's got a headache? Who's got this? Who's got this? Yeah, come on up here, mate. You know, and he'd line, line people up across the front before he ever preached and then he said, I think God's going to heal you right now. And he'd, bam, he'd start praying for people. People would start getting touched. Some would get healed. Some people would fall down. Some people would laugh. I mean, it was, it was bizarre. It was really crazy. And then, I mean, it was like the place was, seemed to be getting out of control. And then Clark would walk up, grab his Bible, which was about that thick, and go, well, now, mate, it's time to break open the Word. You, you need to quieten down right now. The Word's going to be preached. Bring it down, sister. Bring it down. He would walk around if somebody was crying or out loud or something. He'd walk, it's all right, sister, it's all right. The word's going to be preached. They need to hear it quieting down like that. We'll come back in a little bit and you can go to it again. And uh, sure enough, he would come back at the end, you know, and then we'd go back to it again. It was, it was crazy. But we rein in the emotion when it's appropriate and then we allow it to be used to give God praise. Some of us need to be released. It's healthy to be released in the presence of the Lord for God to heal us. And also to give God that love that he deserves, that kissing in our emotions that he deserves. Michael was afraid of her dignity more than she was God's. Her dignity was on the line. 
I mean, the question for us this morning is, whose dignity are we concerned with? God's or our own? Which one? God desires our worship. And one of the ways we express that worship is with our emotions, with our brokenness, with our love, with a conviction sometimes. You know, repentance is a beautiful act of worship. I want the band to come back on up if they would right now, but I just I, I want to say that repentance, when we're singing, if God grips your heart and says, you remember this sin this week? And he puts his finger on something. Don't run from that. It's okay. And it's okay to show remorse for that because the Lord is here to forgive. That's an act of worship to say, God, you are able to forgive me of my sins. That is saying he is who he said he was, the forgiver of sins. And so we want to release ourselves. Is it a free-for-all? Not at all. But let's not be held hostage by some Greek dualism or some training or some DNA, something in our background that robs us of that close, intimate worship with God. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd come right now. I I love this church. Lord, I love that we've got so many people who love the scripture here. And we're, we're looking into the scripture today to discover what type of worship you desire. And so, Lord, right here as we sing a few songs to pull this to a close today, I pray that you help us release ourselves to you. Come, Holy Spirit, and help us. Help us in Jesus' name. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and were perhaps even challenged in some way to continue pursuing a closer relationship with God through Jesus. Here at Seacoast Vineyard Church, our vision is to worship God with passion, to reach out in Jesus' name with compassion, and to mature as a people of power and purpose. For more information, including our location and gathering times, visit www.seacoastvineyard.com.